All right, let's open our Bibles to Matthew 20. Matthew 20 this morning, getting my clock out so that I can keep us in some sense of reasonable um, time with our time in the Word. I, uh, I'm encouraged to uh, approach this text uh, as a, it's a big text with uh, uh, a single point. So I'm putting together three paragraphs to call that one big text for one big point that we need to get. And so I'm going to read our text all together to kind of lead us into this one single point that I think you'll see if it all is read together. So I'm going to read verses 17 to 28 now. Listen as I read. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and that their great and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Big text, three paragraphs. They're going to make three scenes to make one point. And the point that we're going to see is the point he's been making that he is threading through his flow here. And I want you to look at verse 30 of chapter 19. It's been the point that we've been making. Jesus says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. The idea is finishing last. Look down at uh, verse 16 of chapter 20. So the last will be first and the first last. Now, at the end of the text that we just read, look at verse 26. It shall not be so among you, for whoever would be great among you must be your servant. To be great is to be a servant. And verse 27, whoever would be first among you must be your slave. It's finishing last. Taking the last seat at the table or running the race and taking last, but aiming to take last. This is Jesus 
mindset. And this is the mindset he wants to pass on to his teammates, to his friends, to his followers. Finishing last. This is his master class on how to finish last. Type A personalities don't necessarily like this. They want to finish first. You train to finish first. You educate to finish first. You um, build to finish first. You um, compete to finish first. This is the mindset of a winner. The net, it's never the coach's goal to put their team in a game, game time mindset of finishing last, taking last place. It's counterintuitive. At the same time, there's a different way to look at this within the upside down kingdom, and that is to see that what Jesus is saying by finishing last is really that by finishing last, you finish first. The idea is that you go by way of the cross to get to the exaltation at the right hand of the Father. Suffering before glory. Persecution before heaven. That's the path that Jesus models. That's the example that he wants his disciples to follow. And it begins with, a, with an appropriate mindset. Paul styled the Christian life out of this mindset where he said in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 26, I do, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. He talked about running hard to finish, to compete, to complete, um, the, and to win with the prize. Verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. In other words, the work that I'm doing is for a prize, but it is not the physical prize. It is one that is beyond in heaven's prize. And so... It's the idea that we run a race and we run, we run to win, but we're doing it in a spiritual mindset. The first shall be last. You win by suffering. Jesus won by being the ultimate martyr. He's the ultimate sacrifice. The world understands this even. The world loves a no conflict of interest, self-sacrificial person. They love the person who's won the championship but gives the credit to the team, to the coach. They love the businessman who is super successful and is entrepreneurial and has made his footprint on, footprint on the world, but it's all about the team and his employees and coworkers. And he's not taking interest to himself. The mother who's self-sacrificingly given to him, herself to her children in such a way that um, is not taking credit for herself. It's in all of the movies, in all of the literature, the ancient literature of the Christ figure motif where they martyred themselves on the field of battle. They, they martyred themselves in, in being a first responder. This is what everybody loves. And you see this scene over and over again where someone is dying on their deathbed and they've given themselves and they're saying, it's all right, I'm letting go now. I'm, I'm letting go. How many people have seen that movie scene over and over again? It's, it's the self-sacrificial person. People understand this motivation of finishing last, the ultimate selfless act. And yet... Even within the church, we quickly abandon this mindset to selfish ambition, don't we? Selfish ambition. It's nothing wrong with being ambitious. It's selfish ambition that makes it skewed or wrong or problematic. It's where pride is inserted in winning. 
Not wrong to want to win. It's wrong to want to win for self in a way that you're, you're missing the point to your own detriment. Self-glory is a pitfall. Pride comes before the fall. The pride-driven life is a life that leads downward, not upward. In other words, Jesus is saying, take the path of a slave. Be the servant of Christ, the follower of the Lord, as you compete, as you pursue the prize, as you want to move in the same wake as Jesus is going towards the cross to exaltation in heaven. Three scenes here make one point. The three scenes are making the point that we are called to finish last. Jesus begins by making this point, leading by example, leading by example, predicting the third time of what is about to happen to him going into Jerusalem. He's eyes wide open. He knows exactly what's going to happen, and he details it for us. Look at verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem... He took the 12 disciples aside and on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Two parties deliver him over. First, you have the Jews that are represented in the chief priests and scribes. They're condemning him to death. Crucify him, they say. Pilate, you know, I, I see no um, wrong in him, but I'm, I'm allowing you to deliver him over. Give us Barabbas, right? And so the epitome of apostate Israel is seen in the chief priests and scribes. The leaders of the law of God are saying, we are condemning the son of God as a criminal, worthy of crucifixion excruciating pain. That's what crucifixion means. But that's not only given to the Jews, but also the Gentiles. Look at verse 19. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. The Gentiles also deliver Christ over in death because he was mocked and flogged and crucified by the Roman guards, by those who are representing the Gentiles. And all of this is to say Jesus is going into this path very deliberately to give himself over to this criminal act that both the Jew and the Gentile are responsible for so that he can die, not just for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. The whole world, anyone that would believe, can be saved, Jew and Gentile, because of his sacrificial death. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. And he was leading by example to do this. Isaiah 53, he was a lamb led to the slaughter. Led by the Father's will to this slaughter, Jesus is leading by example for his disciples to follow. It begins with Jesus taking the lead. Mark 10, 32 says, and they were on the road going to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Jesus is going, I'm marching to Jerusalem. I'm marching to this Slaughter. Luke 9, 51 says that as the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was fully locked and engaged to go to the cross. Isaiah 57, 50, verse 7, picks up on this prophetically saying, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall be put to shame. Jesus was locked in. He had a locked jaw ready to go to the cross. 
the disciples were still figuring this out. And the epitome of doubt is represented always in Thomas. John eleven sixteen. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Don't you love Thomas? Wasn't there always a Thomas in the friend group, you know? Hey, let's go. This will be great. They're not ready to go at that pace, but Jesus led by example and also by explanation. He was explaining everything that was going on. He was Luke 18, 31. He took the 12 aside. Matthew's um, gospel says the same thing. He's taking the 12 aside to explain what's going on. The details are explaining his intent, his mindset. He's calling himself the son of man. So he's talking in third, third person here. And in verse 18, saying the son of man will be delivered. He's saying, I am that man. I am the fulfillment of Daniel 7, verse 13, the son of man that'll come in the clouds. He is this person. And Jew and Gentile are taking part in this reprehensible act together. This is Jesus saying the last will be first and the first will be last, back to verse 16. This injustice, this murder on a cosmic, universal, infinite scale by a cross is the ultimate validation that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. Can I get an amen? He's our Savior. He's our Savior. He knew what he was willing to do, and he did it. And he's validated in this. And the news is not ending in a bad note, because look at the end of his paragraph, It says in verse 19, and he will be raised on the third day. He will be resurrected on the third day. He knew that as well. He's leading by example. He's leading by explanation. He's not confused. And then scene two. Scene two. That's all prologue to scene two. Scene one goes right into scene two. Look at verse 20 with the word then. Then, so he said this, and then someone who's walking alongside does something, says something. Who is it? It's the mother of James and John, the mom who most scholars believe is Salome. It says, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. They're all in cahoots together. They've all talked about it. Mark's account says the sons are the ones who are the mouthpiece here. Anyway, have you want to look at it, the mom and sons are asking for what they're asking for. And it says, and kneeling before them, she asked him for something. Don't know the mom's motive. Don't know her heart. I just know her body language was the same as the rich young ruler. I'm putting myself prostrate before you for you to hear my request. I'm going to ask you for something now, Lord. This is, uh, she's thought it through. She's very deliberate. She knows what she's doing. She's got her boys with her. It's a pressure moment. And this is what she's saying as an application to the gospel that Jesus has just given. He's just said, I'm going to die a sacrificial death. I will be raised, but I'm going to die. Okay, great. Heard you on that. Now let me ask you this. I'm going to skip ahead. That's what this mom is doing. The mother of the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, the sons of Barjonas, or I'm getting that wrong. I'll say it right in a minute. But anyway, Bonergies, there it is. It just means sons of thunder. 
And she's the thunder clap at this point. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, obviously. This woman had a mind of her, a mind of her own, and she had heard about the death, burial, resurrection, and she is coming to bring heaven to bear on Jesus. Who is this woman? Well, she's probably Siloam. Some believe that because she would be Siloam, one of the three named as the three women who are significantly around the cross when Jesus dies. You have Mary, the mother of Jesus. You have Mary Magdalene, and you have Siloam. Those are the three women who are named in the um, Gospels. In Matthew's list, you have Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary, or and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So two Marys, one Siloam, and Siloam is the mom of the sons of Zebedee. In Mark's list, it's Mary Magdalene, and then you have, you have Mary, the mother of James, and then you have Salome listed there. And then in John's list, you have Jesus' mother, and then you have um, his mother's sister, and that is known as Salome, and then you have Mary Magdalene. And so if, if Salome is, is um, Mary's sister, then that means she's Jesus' aunt, and it makes James and John cousins. There's different scholars that like look at this and understand it. All that I'm saying is this is a pressure moment. Mary, this woman, Salome, is not an unknown woman. She's not outside of the group or outside of the circle. So she's asking something heart to heart. And it's not an out of the way question in light of what Jesus has just been talking to Peter about, which is kind of an interesting way to put this in context. If you go back to chapter 19, you remember Jesus is reacting to the disciples where they are bewildered by the fact that the rich young ruler is not a candidate for salvation. Look at this guy. Let him in the college. Look at him. You know, that kind of moment. He's rich, he's young, and he's a synagogue ruler. He's got the pedigree. Why can't he be saved? You just said something impossible. Sell everything you have. In other words, just give it all away and then you can follow me. No, what Jesus was saying to the rich young ruler is lay it down in terms of your heart. Be willing to give it all away and follow me. It's what the apostles had just done. And with man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. So Peter's like, okay, check, got it, got it. It's possible. I'm in. But now what do I get once I get to heaven? Because I've left everything. And that's where he is. In verse 27, Peter said, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus starts to describe the new world, the resurrected world, the born again world where we'll be in heaven. The son of man will sit on his glorious throne. Verse 28 you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So got it. Peter's going, there's 12 tribes, 12 thrones, and I get one of those. Amazing. And then Jesus goes on to humble everybody and say, everyone's going to get a hundredfold more than that because it's heaven. This is incredible. Bring us back to this moment where this woman comes up, Salome, if that's who she is, she's kneeling before Jesus and she's going, okay, I understand. So James and John, along with Peter, by the way, they all went up to the transfiguration and saw your glory. So they saw a prefigured um, moment of heaven. That's awesome. Hint, hint. So can they have that special M, you know, MVP pass in heaven as well? That's what she's saying. Like if, if they're following you and they've left everything, then can they get special privilege 
and get upfront, you know, floor seating to see the game up close. And this is not super far-fetched for her to ask that because of all the privileges that her two boys have had. They've had intimate fellowship with Christ, with Peter. And Peter's asked the question. Jesus said they are going to get thrones. So can they have the two closest thrones? By the way, the boys are just as brash as their mother. Mark 10, 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, it says, they came up to him, Jesus, and said to him, teacher, we want to do, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. That's what we want. Hey, we don't want any more than that. We just want you to give us whatever we want. So they're standing right there. It's the son of Bonerges. It's the, it's the sons of thunder. Luke 9 has a scenario, by the way, where Jesus had sent James and John ahead as envoys to check out Samaria because they had to pass through Samaria, which was hostile territory to them, both in terms of ethnicity and, you know, the difference between a Jew and a Samarian, um, Samaritan. There was all kinds of dynamic there. And, um, you know, it was awkward. And so, the Samaritans are a different religion. It would be like Christians kind of interacting with cults and trying to get along. And Jesus was coming in as evangelists, but they didn't want to set James and John up um, for, you know, lodging or whatever. And in Luke nine fifty four, it says, when the disciples, James and John saw it, saw that they were being rejected, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That's what we're dealing with. Bold disciples, type A disciples. And Jesus is trying to teach these type A disciples a lesson. And the lesson is this, finish last. Come through the path of a slave, a servant. Not trying to be bold, to win for your own selfish ambition, your own glory. It's not wrong to seek Christ's glory. It's not wrong to want to be close to his glory in heaven. All of those motives are right It's not wrong to receive a throne that's promised to you in heaven. Jesus isn't taking that away, but it's wrong to do it for selfish ambition. And there's a fine line between that, being bold for the Lord, walking into his presence, desiring him to bless you, and doing it all for his glory, not your own. That's the path of being last. R.C. Sproul said, there's no theological glory without first theological crucis. The cross before the crown. One person said the disciples were trying to be appointed to Christ's chief members as Christ's chief members of his cabinet. That's what they wanted. Well, that was uh, missing the point. That was the gospel misapplied. And now Jesus makes a challenge to this misapplication in verse 22. It says, Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. By the way, it's obvious that James and John were asking this. They weren't victims of a headstrong mother. They were leveraging their mother to get what they wanted. Jesus is saying this is ironic because exactly what the mom is asking is probably the worst possible thing she could ask for. You want them to have privilege in heaven, but do you realize that the path to that privilege is to drink the cup of wrath? And I don't mean in a saving way. I just mean guilt by association. If Jesus is going down, you're going down with Jesus. If they did it to the master, they're going to do it to the follower. If they do it to the Lord Jesus, they're going to do it to his body. 
I don't know what that means for us in the 21st century in the world that we're in with things in the death spiral culturally that they're in, but we need to sort of strap in for the mission ahead and be willing to go last rather than first. Winning is by losing your life for Christ. Do you know what you're asking? I mean, could you imagine a mom? She's asking for their kids to get the best place at the table, the highest honor, the greatest accolade. And Jesus is saying, ironically, this means they're going to suffer the most. And Jesus is less indicting this moment and more clarifying the moment and asking them, are you able Which, by the way, what's amazing about James and John is after all the dust settles with Jesus clarifying this, they stick in the battle. They don't leave. They stick in and stay on the path to Jerusalem. Yeah, they're going to take a bumpy ride and run away for a while, but in the end, they're followers of Christ. Jesus isn't negating the fact that there'll be heaven, but he is getting them to sort of promise that they're going to follow Jesus no matter what. We are able. There's gravity here because in verse 23, he says, okay, he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Okay. You're committing to drink the cup. You're committing to follow, but are you willing to follow even if you don't get the crown, even if you don't get the throne? I think there's, that's implied because Jesus is going, there's a pecking order in the Trinity. This is the father's business to give you the throne that I've promised. It's his promise that he's giving to you. What I'm promising you is that if you follow me, you're going to drink the same cup I drink. If you follow me, you're going to be persecuted, guilt by association. The privilege of heaven comes at a cross, at a cost. Grace is not cheap grace is costly we're given it it's freely given but it also has implications in terms of being a christian here on earth it's not mine to grant it's my father's to grant it's his preparation it's what he's done for his children this is always the pattern following jesus through suffering comes means that there'll be glory. Mark 10.35 makes a synonym between drinking this cup and being baptized. In Mark 10.38, says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with a baptism which I am being baptized? Jesus, in a saving way, was to drink, drink the cup of wrath, which is the cross. You say, well, wasn't it the Jews that delivered Jesus over? Aren't they the wrath? Isn't it the Romans that ultimately flogged and scoffed and murdered Jesus? Well, those things happened. But the wrath that's pictured here with the cup that Jesus would drink is the wrath of God against all who are unrepentant for all of eternity. That's the cup wrath of God. Meaning when Jesus died on the cross, he absorbed everyone's hell onto himself for all of eternity's sake, for all who would believe. That's the wrath, rage of the father that was against his son on your behalf and my behalf. 
Jesus absorbed that for you and me, and that's him drinking the cup of wrath in a saving, atoning way. He atoned for our sins. This is what Jesus begged God to not have to undergo in the Garden of Gethsemane. The perfect God-man is saying, Father, if there's any way for me to not have to drink this cup of wrath, let me out of it. Sweating great drops of blood, begging the throne of God, let me not have to absorb that. And then, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus finally and fully commits to go to the cross. This is not what the disciples, Peter and James, are being promised to have to do. They're not atoning for anybody's anything by following Jesus and drinking a cup. The cup that they're going to drink is a martyr's cup by association with the true saving Lamb of God. But they're saying we're able to do this. It's important for them to know what they were signing up for. This is the path of finishing last. Jesus would drink the cup to the dregs, and then the disciples would drink it by association. James died as the early church martyr, not the earliest one. Stephen's the first martyr. Acts 12, 1 and 2 says that at the time of Herod, the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. So he cuts James' head off. And then John, we know, is exiled to the island of Patmos to be left for dead on that island. He sees the book of Revelation, the vision while he's there. He says, while I was on the island called Patmos, Revelation 1.9, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. How did the other disciples respond? Look at verse 24. They overhear the woman. They overhear the mom. They overhear the, the two, James and John. And it says, when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now, how do you interpret indignant here? That means to have a righteous anger. Were they righteously angry against James and John going, how dare they? How dare they ask for throne privilege when that's mine to have? And I think that's where they were coming from. I don't think that they were righteously, righteously indignant against their colleagues, I think that they were jealous about what they were asking for and they knew what they were gunning for and they were jealous to want it themselves. They're indignant because Jesus brings everybody in where he's isolated the two and the mom. And now he says, okay, all right, let's call a family meeting. Let's bring everybody in. Now we're going to, we're going to level the playing field and talk about this all together because you're all being tempted to fleshly Gentile like thinking. He brings it in. And this is what brings us to scene three, the gospel rightly applied. You have the gospel defined, the gospel misapplied, and now the gospel rightly applied. And it's rightly applied by what it looks like first to not, I mean, to to try to finish first. You can learn what to do by what not to do. Look at verse 25. And Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Fleshly, dare I say political rulers, people who are all about themselves, all about their own hype, all about their own image. They lorded over their heavy handed, high fisted, fleshly leaders and their great ones, great in their own minds, exercise authority over them. This hierarchical of power, fleshly leadership. 
That's the model of what not to be. That's finishing first in your mind. Like, I want to win. It's like church conflicts that I, where I've seen things settle out where finally somebody yields in submission and they go, well, okay, cool, you won. You won. Well, it's like I didn't know we were competing. A fleshly Gentile leader is trying to win. You can't try to win in kingdom work. You have to try to be truthful and faithful and yield to the truth. You fight for truth. You don't fight to be right. You don't fight to win. God despises that kind of pride. Don't be like Gentile rulers who want to flex. Don't do that. That's, again, what he's calling them not to be like. Don't be someone who's trying to finish first. If you turn over in your Bibles to 3 John real quick, you see the ultimate example in one name of one person who was trying to finish first. 3 John, I think it's verse 9. This is, the man's name is Diotrephes, and Diotrephes was a leader in the church. The early churches of Asia Minor were under kind of the leadership of the last remaining a living apostle, which was John. And John is the aged apostle. Before he was exiled to the island of Patmos, is writing this letter to these churches. And what he's trying to do is propagate and perpetuate the mission of the churches through missions work. And Diotrephes, he's calling him out for stepping on the air hose of missionary work where missionaries were showing up. And he was saying, Diotrephes was saying, don't support these men and women. Shun them. Shun them. I mean, look at verse 9. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our own authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing. This is what he's doing. Talking wicked nonsense against us. Trying to undermine other people to his own prowess. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. He's putting the missionaries out of the church. And he's putting pressure on those who want to welcome them. He's shutting the whole place down. But the key phrase is in verse 9. He likes to put himself first. That's diatrophies. That's what Jesus is saying not to do. You can't do this. You need to not try to finish first. You need to finish last. Verse 26. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. What does that mean? It's kind of an interesting way for Jesus to put it. You have a servant and you have a slave. I mean, saying the word slave in any context, not just talking about the context of our country, is like politically incorrect. But Jesus came in the form of a slave. The word doulos is the word in the original Greek language. He came as a servant. He washed the disciples' feet all the way to the end. He is the servant of servant. Philippians 2, he was the condescending um, sacrificial servant who took on the form of a slave for his life in service and also in his death on the cross. He is the slave. And what he is saying here is that if you're going to see what this really looks like to start last, you're going to have somebody actually serve you. You want to see what a servant looks like? Hang out in the body of Christ in the kingdom of God and you'll see people serving you. 
or a slave that comes, someone who's a willing servant, willingly coming under, who, is, who has the mindset of having no rights for themselves whatsoever. We're bought out of the slave market when we're saved, and we're bought by the price of a slave who laid down his life and took our place. It's incredible. This language is beautiful when you think about it. Someone who is the most worthy person in the universe, Jesus, became a slave to set us free from our enslavement, from sin, and from not only the, the power of sin, but from the penalty of sin for all of eternity, set free. This is what you'll see in the kingdom. If you want to see people finishing last, live in the kingdom and you'll see people serving you and be taking on the posture of a slave, just like Jesus did at Passover when he washed the disciples' feet. The ultimate picture of this is verse 28. Even so, even as, I'm sorry, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. Whoever's going to be first will be last. Jesus gave his life to pay for all of your sins. The ransom for all who would believe. You don't do this if you're coming for selfishness or selfish ambition. You're coming out of servanthood, finishing last. One person put it that chances are, in view of how the disciples are acting at this late-in-the-game status right before Jesus is going to the cross, chances are that Christianity as a movement was destined to fail. Slim to none that it would succeed whatsoever. The disciples appear to be flatlining right now. Jesus is taking time, though, to do with them what he does with you and with me. He takes his time. He evaluates our heart. He sees where you are and where you are not. He absorbs the moment, evaluates your pride. He takes into account that you're type A and zealous, but then when you tip the scales in boldness into selfish ambition, he's gracious to you. He loves you. He cares for you. He brings the word of God to bear. He convicts you of it and gives you the opportunity to repent of your sin. And all the while, he's sowing seeds of truth. So when things get hard, and it's like as if, you know, Jesus, he's going to leave these, these disciples, these apostles. He'll always be with them, spiritually speaking, just like he's with us. But when things get hard, the truth comes back. The seeds were sown. And we go, oh, let's finish last for the glory of Christ. Because that's really what it looks like to seek the prize, which is the upward call and the glory of Jesus Christ.